This is the second of a two-parter on James Gould Cousins, and insofar as the first was called The Life of Cousins, this is called, sadly, I guess, The Death of Cousins. And it is a short um, discussion of his masterpiece from 1957 entitled By Love Possessed. By Love Possessed, for my money, certainly uh, in my recent experience, has had the biggest impact on my own thinking and own sort of inner resonance to works of literary art uh, as Dombey and Son, which I uh, also personally uh, regard as one of the masterpieces, despite one big flaw, one of the masterpieces of English literature in its understanding of the oceanic character of human reality and human existence, coupled with the grace message of the overwhelmingly important virtue and uh, um, effect that is transmitted through active and real credible forgiveness. Now, this particular forgiveness of Dombey and Son is not the primary theme of By Love Possessed. And I think the best way to do this in a short podcast is to read a couple of salient sections of Gould Cousin's novel, which will give you a flavor of what he's going for, what this is really about. It's about 48 hours in the life of a middle-aged attorney in the uh, mid-Atlantic small town, similar in size to Doylestown, PA, of Brockton, Pennsylvania, in which these 49 hours, a very capable man at the, as it were, top of his game as a human being, as a person, as a married man and father, as a widower, as a conscientious, uh, altruistic, uh, duty-bound, but in a very positive way, kind of glue or pillar of his community. And it's how his human gifts and experience and wisdom is tested to its uttermost and finally in the last hour of the 49 collapses and is shattered by three slash four external circumstances, one of them being inward, that creates an insupportable uh, picture and experience of existence. And uh, it is uh, in his coming to terms in the last five pages that uh, By Love Possessed has often been regarded as a novel of resignation. Uh, It is unsatisfactory in my own view, philosophically, but it is very close to something that is the experience of human beings when they are face-to-face with catastrophic surprise, catastrophe, and circumstance, and loss in their lives. And for this reason, it makes a kind of very interesting mirror held up to nature for its readers. I'll summarize it (coughs) by reading a few passages to give you a flavor. Then I'll say a little bit about what happened to Cousins, which I mentioned earlier in the last podcast, as a result of this great book. Uh, Interestingly, I always think of Herman Melville, because after... This terrible critical fate that befell Cousins befell him, and his voice was stopped, and his whole sort of confidence as an author, which he could barely accept, although he refers to it occasionally in his later journals, his confidence was uh, completely gone for a very long period of time, and perhaps terminally, that's why I've called it the death of Cousins, people would say, well, what happened to James Gould Cousins, I mean, nothing can be as bad as what happened to Herman Melville. (laughs) 
That's the sort of classic, uh, I find that's the classic chestnut. Well, nothing could be worse in the critical reception and in the aftermath of it than what happened to Herman Melville. Well, um, thanks a lot, you know. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks a pantload, as, uh, as Wayne in Wayne's World 2 says to the incarnate and uncomforting ghost of Jim Morrison. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm sure uh, it was a great comfort to James Gould Cousins to know that what had happened to him couldn't be quite as bad as what happened to Herman Melville. But let me give you uh, just a few uh, quotations from this remarkable novel. At the beginning, uh, Arthur Winner is thinking uh, about his father, who was a an even more wise and uh, um, paterfamilias, but in a positive sense, a glue of a family and community. And uh, he begins to ruminate about his father, Arthur Winter Jr. does. And he says this, thinking about his dad, The slow, seldom painless accreting of self-knowledge must take place before there could be reliable knowledge of other people. Before Arthur Winter Jr. would recognize in sharp illuminations of retrospect his father for what his father was, the nearly unique individual, the man, if not perfectly, at least predominantly, of reason. And then he describes uh, uh, Arthur Winter Sr., his father. With hope no higher than became the lonely student of mankind, Arthur Winter Sr., in earth now rotten, he's dead in other words, speaking to whom it might concern, addressed those surviving him through these things of his. Um, the point here is that Arthur Winter Sr., as happens to Arthur Winter Jr., and as is deemed appropriate to all of us, is better an observer of mankind than a judge of mankind. He observes himself first, and in understanding himself, he begins to understand that which is common to him and all other earth, and thereby his self-knowledge accretes into a knowledge of the human world. Let's look at a few other um, uh, pictures. One of the most uh, pathetic and memorable characters in By Love Possessed is a woman named Helen Detweiler. Her parents had um, uh, died uh, in, uh, had drowned in early life, leaving her as a uh, just pubescent adolescent girl of about 12, almost 13, and a brother four years younger than she. And she is so completely psychologically unstrung by this experience of the death of her parents in a drowning accident at a lake house cabin that her whole personality stops. This is very common in life, and he has captured here, cousins, uh, the kind of um, shock that results in petrification of human beings if the blow, uh, the divorce, or the death, or the loss, or the accident happens at a particularly vulnerable period or age. And he describes Helen Detweiler, who has now become a, a single woman who is the secretary to one of Arthur Winner's, uh, or assistant to one of, one of Arthur Winner's uh, law partners. And uh, she is a person who is stopped and is entirely, and we find, fanatically focused on the well-being of her younger brother, Ralph, who it turns out is an absolute no good and an irredeemable person who is just a nasty, <coughs> impossible 
young man who really uh, has no uh, spine and character at all and increasingly gets himself into trouble. And so focused is Helen Detweiler on trying to help her, as it were, um, uh, irredeemable brother. There are people in this world who are just, you just better stay out of their way. But she is a fanatic, obsessed by her somewhat maternal, sororal love, which has focused all of her losses in life on the well-being of her disappointing um, younger brother. And here is how she is described. Helen's worn expression was almost old. She's, by the way, about 24. Her features had a thinned, sharpened look, as though the nerves, preying so actively on flesh, consumed flesh. Helen's delicately shaped thin mouth, where no lipstick had ever been used, looked paler than usual. The tired, sensitive blue eyes, undercircled markedly, had a look of incommutable anxiety. Now we uh, hear more about Helen as a fanatic as she tries to defend her brother against an untrue accusation of rape. And uh, the uh, here is um, a discussion. Here is how she uh, is seen. Um, the compulsion, Helen's compulsion, was applied at levels of unconscious desire that reason, with reason's counter-arguments of unhappiness, of disappointment, of exhaustion, could never hope to reach. To that anguished inquiry, what, what would deliver her from the body of this death? An answer had miraculously come. Her brother, little Ralph, would. Ralph was plainly Helen's deliverer, her boy savior. And what we discover is that it is her answer to the question ultimately of of sex, because at the key age when her parents died, she came to understand this about life. Indeed, no spelling out would ever be possible here. From a marriage bed, from that loathed warmth, Ralph was plainly Helen's deliverer, her boy savior. Had a little girl outside a big bedroom's blank closed door in the perfect quiet of a hall's late night or early morning, heard a big bed during the day always neatly made, silent and motionless, now sounding with dim persistence with the quicker and quicker rhythmic creak of a horror that was in the end to prove punishable by drowning. That is to say, the child, and this is me speaking, the child had come to believe in a child's way that there was a connection between what she had heard late at night at a very vulnerable age uh, of her parents to their death by drowning. And this had, as it were, resolved the problem of male-female relationships in favor of devious little Ralph. Now, uh, I'll switch the key uh, to mention just a few other uh, quotes here. Um, at one point, a, uh, a man, uh, the district attorney, comes to Arthur Winner Jr. asking Arthur Winner if he will bless the district attorneys running for, uh, to be a candidate for judge in the county. And uh, it's a big thing because the district attorney comes from the other side of the tracks, and Arthur Winner is understood to come from the right side of the tracks. And so, in 
coming to uh, Arthur Winter, the district attorney, has uh, made a very great statement and has sort of humbled himself before power as he understands it. Arthur Winter exceeds and absolutely, completely, immediately says, absolutely, Jerry, uh, I'll back you. This is fine. But Arthur Winter also sees in this man who is in his feverish search, that is the district attorney, to kind of make good his understood self-origins, that is his origins understood by himself as being meager and unsatisfactory. And in seeing the ambition, the naked ambition of this young man to become a judge and thereby have the imprimatur of uh, whatever it is that he thinks is good and valued, Arthur Winner understands something about, um, about ambition. And this is what he writes. Here, before your eyes, was opened the reposeless, anxiety-blighted world, the bleak slave state of the ambitious. And you might ask yourself how any man could still will to live there. The resolve to rise, the author continues, permitted no intermissions. Ambition was never sated. There was no limit to what might be exacted of you. Oh my gosh. Well, there is anyone who's listening to this who's ever been seized with the demon of ambition. And you may say, well, that's not me. I'm a type B. I've never been seized with the demon of ambition. Well, so be it. You may be spared. But believe me, I know thousands of especially men, but now increasingly many women and people of all size and shapes and types and backgrounds who are seized with the notion that if they simply get a particular office or get a particular title or get a particular status, that will give them what they want. And it is a interminable, endless anxiety. Now, um, one of the things that interests me, at least, about Arthur Winter, uh, that is to say about uh, James Gould Cousins in the writing, as I mentioned before, he had always been involved in the Episcopal Church. He was not a Christian in the creedal-believing sense. I guess we might call him sort of a low-church Episcopalian who was an agnostic. He was not an atheist, but he was definitely an agnostic and did not attend church and really had very little time for any kind of Christian dogma, partly, I guess, because he'd been sort of immersed in it as a child, then immersed in it at boarding school, and then all his family connections were, it was just filled with clergy and um, uh, people who went to church. So he understood it, and his description of uh, Episcopalian clergy and laity and vestry is uh, accurate to the point of being devastating in my experience as someone who who knows that world quite a bit over the years. Um, and uh, yet he was not a believer, but his his ability to to understand church and also his being steeped in the old prayer book and in the King James Bible, you've already heard, I know, earlier one uh, particular uh, phrase, his work is steeped in the language of the King James Bible and the prayer book that came out during the English Reformation in the 16th century, which Cousins very much admired and grew up with. He thought that the language and the and the tone and timbre and the rhetoric of the King James Bible and of the prayer book was uh, profoundly grave and uh, enduring. And here he describes, I'm going to read a relatively lengthy passage. He describes uh, a morning prayer service. He describes a rector who is who resents having to conduct morning prayer because the rector is more high church and wants to impose the Eucharist or Holy Communion at every single service of the church. This is in the mid-50s, so if you know what I'm talking about from the standpoint of being someone in the church, you'll laugh because these guys won completely. But here, the rector is very uh, sort of embittered, but he's a good guy, but he's a little bit... 
he doesn't like doing morning prayer. It's just too Protestant. Um, and uh, Cousins points that out. But nevertheless, it's what he has to do for a year or so to get people to trust him enough so he can change the schedule. And we have here on a climactic moment, right before the climax of the novel, the processional of the clergy and the acolytes and the choir at an Episcopal church. It's Christ Church Brockton, PA. And he describes it with such, um, well, you, you see what you think. Listen to this. From the chancel, by the way, his terminology is 100% correct. And uh, it's so nice to, you know, to have someone who, the proper parlance of which, he knows what he's talking about. So his, his portrayal, uh, while not entirely sympathetic, is accurate. <clears throat> sort of like Somerset Mom, you know, was able to do uh, in other contexts. Or, uh, or uh, Jan Struther, and Mrs. Miniver, the closing morning prayer service in Mrs. Miniver with Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon. It's an exact proper evocation of, of an Episcopalian morning prayer service. But there's a, there's a lot more here. There's a lot of layers. From the chancel flooding the nave, covering the rustle of the rising congregation. That phrase, the rustle of the rising congregation. Gosh, I, that's just embedded in my, in my DNA. I'll continue. A great surge of sound swelled out of the organ. Taking a voluntary, as already provided by the carillon, Elmer Abbott, this is the organist, blew prefatory prompting jets of music from his pipes, pre-phrasing the hymn, modulating to key and tempo. Turning, Arthur Winner, Arthur Winner is the soon-to-be senior warden of the parish and is a usher this morning, turning, Arthur Winner could see, a little above the heads of standing people, the processional cross advanced at a pace of ceremony into the north transept, shining gold, jeweled with big semi-precious stones. This morning, Arthur Winner observed, the Christopher was Chet Paulhemus, arisen from dreams of Anne. Anne is Arthur Winner's teenage daughter. Behind the cross came the singing choir. Since most of the singers were still distant, Elmer, in support, was opening the distincter stops, diapasons, and flutes sweetly voluming. First into the transept, and alone for that moment, altos broke on the ear, a dozen scrubbed, starch-collared small boys piping up, pure and neuter. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Now... Four square-capped sopranos could be heard to have entered. At once that clean, thin soar of children's voices was merged, swelled, warmed, unmistakably colored with sex. She is his new creation, by water and the word. On the heels of the women, men were passing the doors of the choir room, a not-bad tenor, and three, by courtesy, baritones, joined in with loud firmness, pulling down the high chant toward male levels of solidity or strength. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Two basses, marching big and sedate in their katas, immediately reinforced the sound, heartily roaring together in their barrel chests. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died." Behind, separated by a few steps in cassock surplice and the green stole of the Trinity season, his hands laid formally together, his good-looking face prayerfully turned up a little, his lips moving either in singing or in simulation of singing, Whitmore Trowbridge, with unostentatious movement, followed after them, came at the end of the procession to the crossing.
Well, I mean, God, you, know, you want to you want to say an expletive here? Gosh darn it! <laughs> he has completely captured in uh, one page uh, that particular hymn, which is sung in innumerable churches, often as the recessional now. Um, how the organist is operating, the acolyte pr- thinking of Anne, the uh, the uh, initially the little boys. I mean, I was in a choir like this. I mean, I was exactly like this in parishes where I grew up. The uh, who aren't really happy to be there, and believe me, they're not there in the year 2011. This long, long hymn that I personally find, it just goes on forever. It has about nine verses. And you see it mirrored also in the uh, movie with Frederick March called One Step in Heaven. I think that's late 1940s, early 50s, about the life of a Methodist minister. And at the end of the movie, he plays on a carillon of, uh, of bells, uh, an organ with bells. He plays the church's one foundation, the minister, and it's another one of those religious mo- movies that's actually fairly true of the life of a Methodist minister, but his cousins gets it. Sex comes into it when the women come in, the heels of the women, and I love this, a not bad tenor and three by courtesy baritones. That says it about every section of a choir uh, that I've ever seen of the second male section before the basses come in. And of course the minister notices he's either singing or in simulation of singing. Well, um, I'm moving toward the conclusion. This I'm going to try to keep to 30 minutes if I can. Uh, But uh, at the very end of the service, uh, a terrible, actually it's the end of that hymn, uh, someone comes into the church and delivers to both ushers, one of whom is a judge and one of whom is Arthur Winter Jr., a very, very important and upsetting message. And they uh, are immediately called to take care of a terrible thing that has happened. And as a result of this terrible thing that has happened, and something else that Arthur Winter discovers while investigating a little bit of the legal background or financial background of it, and something that has earlier happened about a very unpleasant incident in Arthur Winter's own personal life that he was the chief uh, protagonist of, he has become very, very disturbed. He has become disturbed by three terrible events that disturb even the Demosthenes, uh, even the great... Um, the great uh, uh, um, Socratic, calm man uh, of Arthur Winner's rectitude and inner poise and experience and genuine human wisdom. His he's he's been thrown off. He's been thrown off the train or the track of his life, and this happens in the forty ninth hour. And I'm going to read. Uh, how Arthur Winner uh, takes the news that he has now heard. Uh, I won't say what the news is. The book is absolutely a striking masterpiece of inward reflection on outward circumstance with realistic descriptions of a whole host of universal human situations in which ultimately a man is reduced to, 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 to nothingness. And it is there that, that Arthur Winner uh, finds himself. We read on page 542, Arthur Winner stood in his continued chill in a stunned sense of solitariness, as though the early Sunday afternoon world around him had more than merely stopped, come to a halt, to an end, had dissolved, had withdrawn in space, leaving him on a point of rock, the last living man. He said aloud, I am a man alone. The silly words, the stilted, sententious sound of them, jarred him. From the silence, no response could be expected, yet dazedly he became aware of a silence broken. A dead man being dragged? 
well, then something happens which helps to alter Arthur Winner's perspective. And in the concluding, uh, not uh, mightily, but shall we say pro tem. And uh, uh, then uh, beginning on page 564 to the concluding sentences on page 570, Arthur Winner walks from where he has been seated in his law practice over to where he needs to check on the results of a terrible tragedy. And then, as it says, walking, marching on, he goes through his childhood, the life of his town where he has lived every minute of his life. He walks from these places of new, sudden, interrupted learning and enlightenment and shock to the home where he was a boy, where his mother, a widow, now lives. And in the four pages, with a host of literary, Miltonic, many other references, he introverts his discovery uh, into a place of mammoth existential solitude, which um, is finally broken by a phrase with which the novel ends. Now, that is by Love Possessed. As you know, the novel was initially heralded as one of the great novels of the uh, mid-20th century, and there was a chorus of approbation and stunned praise of this great piece of literature. But very soon after, first because it was too popular too quickly, people don't like that, Secondly, because he allowed himself not to check some off-the-record and ironic statements which came across as bigoted, selfish, uh, and really mean towards groups of people and uh, even the female sex. Uh, and it may have been that some of these thoughts were incipient in the man, but uh, it's very clear, as I've described already, that the, uh, that the attacks that came upon him were uh, not true to the man as he'd actually presented himself in his writing, in his journals, to his wife and to his friends. Uh, it was an awful public relations error that produced, uh, just because of certain timing and because of the extraordinary wit and brilliance of Dwight MacDonald's um, attack on Cousins in Commentary Magazine in January of 1958, uh, the man was pilloried and basically um, uh, tarred with uh, the uh, brush of bigotry. And as a result, uh, even in mid-50s America, he was destroyed. And his pers person was attacked, his work was attacked, uh, his sudden success was attacked, and even though a movie was made in, in 1961 and he continued to sell books, that book, partly because of a very purple, sexy passage in the middle of it, made him a rich man. His career was destroyed, his confidence was enervated and vitiated and finally and pricked. And all he was good for eventually was a short, confused, no, not short, but a rather confused, complex, autobiographical kind of quote, novel that came out uh, in 1968 and was again pilloried and attacked, especially by John Updike. The book itself, By Love Possessed, which uh, was the catalyst for the death of Cousins, as I've described it, is a book which in itself presages that because it foreshadows the death of a man, the death of a man's ideas of himself. And uh, these, are, uh, these are very deep issues which are being dealt with. Now, the problem with Cousins is not the book. The book is a masterpiece, and the, uh, the, the uh, cloud that hung over his reputation is unjust if you actually read the book. When you read Dwight MacDonald's Hatchet Job, 
job, which is brilliant. I admit, I've read it carefully and underlined it and really tried to learn from it. It's very clear that in several key cases, uh, McDonald didn't actually read the book. Uh, in two major attacks on Cousins's uh, characters, he he has completely read the characters out of context, and the statements that he that Cousins has put in the mouths of the characters are completely undone and undercut in the book by the fact that one of the characters is a man who's in early Alzheimer's, and one of them is a drunk and an alcoholic and has a kind of uh, Mel Gibson-ish, I'm talking about the recent phone calls, a kind of rant that is clearly the result of alcohol and is stated to be such. And other characters the other characters in the book rise up against this tirade, this misogynistic tirade, and resolve never to consult the man again. So if you actually read the book, the primary criticisms, not the stylistic ones, but the uh, primary criticisms are, are uh, completely ruled out uh, happily, but they were no one saw it until Joseph Epstein in 1983 and the American scholar, the editor of the American scholar, Epstein rebutted them successfully, but it was way too late for Cousins, and it never really stuck anyway. The good reviews that Epstein and now others are putting on this uh, quite brilliant portrayal of the portrait painter of the human condition. The real problem with Cousins is his realism. The problem is he's too close to the bone. He, he describes things like just such a simple, small thing as the Episcopal Church professional. There is too much insight there. It's unreadable if you know that world or the world of the law or the world of judges or the world of uh, hearings uh, of, of accusations about rape. Is it true? Is it not true? It, there is so much to this that is unpleasant because it is so close to reality. No one can read By Love Possessed without feeling that it is being written about them, and it is no fun, although ultimately very, uh, you know, bracing, and I find very illuminating. The ending lacks something, because Cousins himself could never find an answer. He could never really take his realistic perceptions and draw some kind of, or attach, that may be the wrong word, uh, understand them in some kind of philosophical or ultimately theological, uh, let's just use the word philosophical um, frame. He couldn't sort of step back one further level and say, is there any meaning at all in this that might be positively hopeful? What reason would there be to go on living given the nature of reality as I have observed it and put it on paper with such fabulous truth. What is the reason to go on living? And he's not able ultimately to provide Arthur Winner, although he does. And the movie, the book ends on a positive note, quasi, enough to get you through it. Nevertheless, incredibly positive. It is not quite enough to endow Arthur Winner Jr. with enough resolve and strength and courage to continue. There is, it is existential to the point of no exit in implication. And so I lack, I find the lacking here of just a kind of that part of a brain which could think philosophically about it. You just need here a little bit of Augustine, of Hippo, or a little bit of, of, uh, of Plato, or for that matter, Epictetus. I just want someone to, to give us just St. Paul for that matter, someone to give us a, a bigger picture uh, that might uh, enable some kind of satisfying perspective on the facts as he presents them. Well, I've talked about the death of cousins. His book was his death. It talks about death and it is diagnostic to the point of uh, massive nervous breakdown for the reader, but it is so beautifully written and has so many resonances and echoes from culture. It is a book of such high wisdom 
Wisdom and Association, then I recommend it to you unequivocally. Thank you so very, very much for listening to this. I hope it will really make you think about the limits of reality and can you deal with reality. And when you read the book, I ask you to consider what would you do at that place? What would you think at the lower depths of, uh, of Arthur Winter Jr.'s life? Thank you so much, and God bless. Ah!